Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. What I tried to do was articulate the component skills and knowledge that contribute to writing and directly map those different component skills and knowledge to different parts of the writing process that we just talked about. And additionally, and I think this is actually very important, it articulates the nature relations, how things are related to each other among component skills and knowledge. You just heard Dr. Young Suk Kim, professor and the senior associate dean at the School of Education, University of California at Irvine. Today, Dr. Kim joins the All for Literacy podcast in a conversation about the relationship between writing and reading. Here's your host, Dr. Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today for the All for Literacy podcast. In 2024, we're working to connect the research and the experience of educators applying those ideas daily in the schools. So as we look forward, it's essential that information and conversations flow both ways from research to the classroom and that classroom experience back to the researchers. So today we are exploring the research side of that equation with Dr. Young Suk Kim, a professor and the senior associate dean at the School of Education at the University of California at Irvine. She focuses on understanding language and literacy development an effective instruction for racially, ethnically, economically, and linguistically diverse students. Her award-winning work has been recognized by, among many others, with the 2012 Presidential Early Career Awards for Scientists and Engineers by President Barack Obama. And I had the pleasure of working with her when we were both at the Florida Center for Reading Research, or FCRR. We're so grateful to have you join us today. So welcome, Young, and and thank you for spending some time with us. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Like many of the researchers that have joined us on the podcast, you started your professional career in the classroom. So what led you to education as your first career? That's a great question. I don't actually have any grand (laughs) reason or one memorable event that led me to the classroom. Since I was young, I just developed a thought that I would be doing something related to teaching, and that just remained into adulthood. Excellent. Yeah. And there doesn't have to be that big moment. And I think that's great that it's always been a passion of yours from when you were young. And so I guess the question then comes to you were working in the classroom and now you are a presidential award winning researcher. So what led you to make that transition from the classroom to the research side? Sure. One more direct influence was my teaching experience in primary grades in San Francisco. And I worked with the multilingual children there, including English learners. And uh, I noticed a pattern in their reading development among these children. I had two newcomers and both had extremely limited English proficiency. 
and one child had decoding skills in their L1 first language, and the other child did not. And I noticed that the one with the first language decoding skills tended to grasp L2 or English word reading more quickly than the, the other child who did not. So this fascinated me, and I wanted to learn more about why. So that's more direct reason. The other more second, I guess, distal reason is I have been very curious about why some of my friends in elementary school ended up not developing reading or writing skills. I grew up in South Korea in a very remote village, and I was a small school, and everyone was so close to each other. And we just had some students just not reading and or writing, even at the end of elementary school, which was like grade six. So at that time, people simply thought that they were just not smart enough, at least at that time in Korea. But looking back now, knowing what I know, it seems that an important piece that we should have considered is instructional approach. Absolutely. And I love that analogy because I think this idea that the lack of progress or lack of learning to read was because of something inherent about the child and their intelligence. And I think there's been a lot of focus on the literacy crisis in this country and a lot of the excuses have been the same, right? That it must be the kids versus what you just said, instead of looking at the instruction we automatically blamed the students. And so I think that's interesting that it is even, as you said, in South Korea, and it's happening here in the U.S., and so it's an international concern. On previous episodes in our 2023 season, we spoke a lot about the science of reading, but I'm excited today to ask you a question about is there a science of writing? And as we dive into your answer, I want to highlight for our listeners that there is going to be a visual that you can find in our show notes. So if you have that open as you listen to Young's responses about this, it will be very beneficial for you to follow along with the visual. Absolutely. By now, there's a huge body of accumulated literature and studies on the development of writing and effective teaching of writing using scientific methods. And so I think that's the first step is reminding people when we say the science of reading, we're essentially meaning there is a body of evidence, right, of how reading develops and how we should instruct to get the best results, right? That's really what the science of reading is. It's the evidence. So what you're saying is that there is a similar large body of evidence around how writing develops and how we should work with instruction in writing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there used to be many more studies on reading than writing, but we actually recently did a search on the number of studies on writing versus reading that were published in recent years. And there's not really much difference now. Wow. So that's great to hear. So that maybe historically in the 
early 70s or 80s or 90s, there was that discrepancy and there was more focus on the reading than the writing, but across the years and now more recently, we don't see that discrepancy as much that there's many writing studies being done. We often hear about whether it's Scarborough's Rope or the simple view of reading, right? Those are some of the models that we hear a lot about in terms of what it takes to develop reading skills. So can you talk a little bit about what we know it takes to develop writing skills? And then maybe as a a follow-up to that, are there similar models related to the writing process versus reading? Absolutely. As you know, writing is very complex. I do research on both reading and writing. I would say writing is even more complex and takes longer time to develop than reading. And I don't want to offend any reading researchers, (laughs) but (laughs) if you think about writing for yourself, I do work with lots of graduate students in writing. These are really proficient readers, but they still need a lot of time to develop writing skills, for example. Not surprisingly, there are several theoretical models that describe not the writing process and the skills and knowledge that contribute to the process. So to illustrate this, I'm going to ask you, Liz, (laughs) and also listeners to engage in a very quick writing activity. So I'm going to invite you to write about what you did during our recent holidays in December or early January. So I'm assuming that you're writing using your dominant hand? Yes. All right. Now I'm going to ask you to pause. Continue writing your less dominant hand. So put your pen to the other hand and continue writing. Oh, my goodness. Okay. (laughs) That is not as easy. (laughs) Yeah, as you do, I want you actually to think about what's happening to your writing, to the process. Okay? Okay. Well, for one thing, Uh it's a lot harder to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to ask you to do one more. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you to continue to write in a language other than English, but in a language that you're not highly proficient. Okay. For me, that would be French. Okay. Okay. Can I switch back to my dominant hand? Oh, yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Everything really just kind of comes to a halt. (laughs) (laughs) I have to think so much more, less about my actual thoughts Mm -hmm. and more about the physical writing. When I was writing with my left hand for me is my non-dominant hand how to actually form letters using my non-dominant hand. And then when I was just trying to write in French, I was trying to think about the vocabulary and think about the spelling and all focus on a cohesive, thoughtful response went out Mm -hmm. the window. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I didn't even prompt you, but you just (laughs) right on it. That's exactly what happened. So in the reason why I ask you to engage in this brief exercise is for you to experience just a little bit of, you know, what it feels like to be a five-year-old, six-year-old whose handwriting or spelling is not very fluent. 
and those whose oral language is not proficient enough, right? Mm. So let's think about now keeping all these things in mind. Let's think about the writing process. And then we'll think about the skills and knowledge that we draw on during the writing process. So when I gave you the prompt, I'm assuming that I believe that the first thing you did was you were thinking about what you're going to write about, the content of it, right? Yes. This is called... I put a bulleted list of things I did over the holiday. <laughs> so you're planning. That's called idea generation, <laughs> right? So that's one part of the initial part of the writing process. Now, once you have generated ideas and they have to be translated into oral language, and you may not consciously think about it because for adults, this can be automatic a lot of times. But you can think about it, same ideas can be expressed using different words, different phrases, different sentences for different audiences, etc. right? So ideas do have to be translated into oral language. And this is called translation process. The next process is these translated ideas have to be transcribed into written product, right? Because writing requires written product or output. And this is called transcription process. And then we have tools, usually adults, evaluate our own writing and revise it. Then this is called the revision process. Yes. And all these processes involve our cognitive resources in social emotional aspects, knowledge and skills from long-term memory, etc. Now, there are theoretical models that explain the writing process that I just described. And there's also other sets of theoretical models that focus on the skills and knowledge that are involved in the writing process. So just to name a few, some theoretical models that had high influence in the field was the Hayes and Flowers Cognitive Model of Writing, or the Simple View of Writing, or Not So Simple View of Writing. More recently, in an effort to expand these previous models, I propose a model called the direct and indirect effect model of writing, and I call it DIEW, D-I-E-W. Just to review before we jump into hearing more about the DIEW model, there's the steps, the generation of ideas, translating okay. those into oral language and then okay. transcribing those into written language and then the revision or editing process, right? Those are the steps okay. in the writing process. And I know some people might break that into a few more steps or things yep. like that. And then you were saying within each of those steps in the process, what are the skills that are needed in order to be successful? And that's what some of these models have done. So can you talk a little bit more about the model you created, the direct and indirect effects model of writing? Absolutely. So the process that I just talked about, it's not really linear, right? Sometimes it's definitely recursive and iterative, right? So in DO, what I tried to do was articulate the component skills and knowledge that contribute to writing and directly map those different component skills and knowledge to different parts of the writing process that we just talked about. And additionally, and I think this is actually very important, it articulates the nature relations, how things are related to each other among component skills and knowledge. 
So this is actually quite complex. And so bear with me a bit. And as you explain the model, I encourage the listeners to check the show notes for a visual of the model that Young is going to talk us through right now. Great. In this building structure, it looks like a house. It may look like a pantheon to some people. What you see here is on the roof are reading comprehension and written composition. And they're placed on the roof because they're built on all the other skills and knowledge that are below the roof. And you'll also see two pillars. One pillar is called the lexical literacy skills and handwriting and keyboarding skills. In the lexical literacy skills are word reading and writing skills at the word level. So they include the word reading and spelling. And these are one of the pillars because these are necessary for reading comprehension and written composition. Handwriting and keyboarding skills are necessary only for written composition, but not for reading comprehension. The other pillar that supports the roof is called oral discourse. Oral discourse refers to comprehending and producing oral text at the discourse level. So, for example, listening to stories and comprehending them, sharing about your winter break in oral context, describing different types of dinosaurs. All these things in an oral language context are examples of oral discourse. Oral discourse skills are now the other pillar because this is also necessary for reading comprehension and written composition. These are in the pillar because if either the lexical literacy pillar or all discourse pillar are absent, the building structure cannot stand, right? So both are necessary. Now look at the beam that connects the lexical literacy pillar and oral discourse pillar to the roof. That's text reading fluency and text writing fluency. They're placed there because they act as a bridge connecting the lexical literacy and oral discourse skills to reading comprehension and written composition. Now let's move to the foundational stone under the lexical literacy pillar. That is what uh, it takes to develop lexical literacy skills. And this includes print-related immersion literacy skills such as knowledge and awareness of phonology, orthography, and morphology. So what this means is that word reading and spelling skills are built on phonological awareness, orthographic awareness, and morphological awareness. Let's turn to the oral discourse pillar. The foundation that supports oral discourse skills include higher order cognitions and regulations. And what do I mean by them? They include making inferences, understanding multiple perspectives called perspective taking, reasoning, setting goals, monitoring, self-enforcement, etc. An oral discourse skill also requires foundational oral language skills such as vocabulary and grammatical knowledge. Right? So for you to understand and produce stories, you need to be able to make inferences, understand different people's viewpoints and vocabulary and grammatical knowledge, etc. And at the very bottom or foundation of the building are domain general cognitive skills in executive function. And they include, for example, 
working memory, inhibitory and attentional control shifting. And they're placed at the very bottom because these are necessary for all the skills and knowledge that we discussed. And these are actually uh, necessary for all learning, not just reading and writing, but math and other things. Now, inside the building, there are two kind of window-looking pieces. So close to the oral discourse pillar is background knowledge. And background knowledge includes oral knowledge, content knowledge, and discourse knowledge. This is placed near oral discourse because it contributes to oral discourse and reading comprehension and written composition. Now, the other window to is placed near the lexical literacy pillar, and that includes social emotions towards reading and writing. These include attitude and anxiety towards reading and writing, self-efficacy about reading and writing, and self-motivation. And these are placed right here on the close to word reading or the lexical literacy pillar because they develop very closely interacting with word reading, spelling, text reading, and writing, and associated experiences. Okay, that is getting back to the original point that writing development is almost more complex, right, than reading development. But as you were explaining those, and it was really helpful, and again, I encourage our listeners to look at the notes to get the visual as they're listening to your explanation, even if they're looking at the visual and somebody hasn't had a deep training in some of these terminologies and thinking about the complexity of this model, if you were to give the kind of high-level abbreviated version of this model for teachers to think about, first, I think the thing that is interesting to note is that your model of writing includes reading skills. Right. Right. So can you maybe think about for teachers, again, who haven't been trained in the depth of these terms, what might be the things that would be most critical for them to take away from this model? That's a great question. I guess one of the unique ways this model expands previous ones is uh, that these pieces that I, the one that I just talked about, they're organized in a certain way, right? They're not just a list of things, right? A list of things related to writing, they're actually organized. So if you look at the figure, right? At the top, there's a reason why reading comprehension and written composition are at the top because they require everything else. And then there's a reason why print-related emergent literacy skills are placed right underneath lexical literacy because these are necessary for lexical literacy skills, right? So things are organized in a certain way. So I think one of the things that I want listeners to think about is develop a mental model of what it takes. Reading is very complex. Writing is very complex, but all these skills are not really arranged in an unorganized way, but they are instead actually clustered in a very organized way. So if you develop this mental model, and I think that, that way the visual is very helpful, is actually that you can see how things are connected. And then that actually has implications 
for assessment and the instruction that I would love to talk about. One way these are organized is what I call the hierarchical relations. The reason why I place these things in uh, this uh, building structure is to show these hierarchical relations. In a simple way of thinking about hierarchical relations is that skills build on each other. So skills or knowledge are not independent or separate. They're related to one another and they're related in a systematic way. Um, and the, many of them are hierarchically related. So the example that I had, right, working memory is foundational for everything. So we need working memory because it supports emerging literacy skills such as phonological awareness. And so if one does not have solid phonological awareness or knowing letters like such as orthographic awareness, then that's going to present a challenge in word reading and spelling. If one does not build a solid word reading and spelling skill, then one is going to have a challenge in text reading and text writing. And that influences their reading comprehension and reading composition. So tell us a little bit more about how these hierarchical skills influence instruction. You said we need to build those foundational skills. Can you talk a little bit more about how this image influence how teachers should think about instruction? Sure. First, when it comes to teaching reading and writing, because reading and writing are built on multitude of skills. So instructional approach that emphasizes one aspect or one cluster of skills would not support overall development of reading and writing skills. So I just want to emphasize that instruction should address multiple skills comprehensively. So if you look at the pillars, the lexical literacy pillar and the oral discourse pillars, they have to be developing at the same time. Typically in primary grades, a lot of attention may be devoted to the lexical literacy, like developing word reading and spelling. That's necessary, but that's not sufficient in the long term. Because lexical literacy, as we know, is necessary, right? So word reading is necessary for reading comprehension. Spelling and handwriting or keyboard influence is necessary for writing. But as we know very well, that's necessary but not sufficient for good reading comprehension or written competition, right? So at the same time, as we are supporting students to develop lexical literacy skills, we also need to provide very systematic and explicit instruction to support oral discourse skills. Again, that includes listening to stories, listening to informational text, or producing narratives or producing expository informational text in a very coherent way, right? To support that, we need to teach making inferences. We need to teach understanding different perspectives, right? How to reason and to teach vocabulary, sentence structure, yeah, I just want to unpack a couple of things you said there. So I think when we're looking at these pillars of lexical literacy and oral discourse or oral composition, and also thinking about the simple view of reading, we have word reading and we have language comprehension, right? We've heard a lot in the press and a lot of teachers have heard a lot of noise around phonics, right? Phonics equals the science of reading. And we know that is not the case. And so I want to highlight what you're saying 
which is so important here is that there's two pillars holding up the roof in this model. And one is around building that sound symbol correspondence, building up word reading skills. But the other part is that oral language. And I do want to highlight that you said something that's so important that I think now I'm putting my speech and language pathologist hat on, but it's so important that you can build those skills through listening comprehension and oral comprehension before they become readers. And they need to understand and learn about inferencing and even visualizing stories and some of these strategies, right? When you go back to that bottom bar of executive function, right? And working memory and holding things in our memory while we're trying to do something with that information, right? Yep. To build those skills and give some strategies like visualizing as you're listening to a story, those can all develop as soon as the students, right? Kindergarten students, even pre-K students. And I think that is also a misconception that a lot of people think it's just about the phonics, which is certainly important, but it needs to be balanced with also developing the oral language and oral discourse that will then later impact and support reading comprehension and written comprehension, which is the roof. So I'm so glad you brought up that point because I think our teachers are hearing the word phonics (laughs) so much in relation to the science of reading. And we know that's not even half, right? But like that idea of the code versus the meaning. And you talked about in the early grades how this model might work related to instruction. You talked about working with even some of your college students. How does this look differently or how might this impact instruction in some of our upper grades? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the hypotheses that I have as part of you, in addition to hierarchical relations, one other is called the dynamic relations. What that means is how the skills and knowledge contribute to reading comprehension and written composition differ as a function of several factors. One is development. That's uh, what you're talking about. Yeah. So in the beginning phase of reading development or writing development, say primary grades, right? If you think about reading comprehension, really the primary determinant of one's reading comprehension is word reading and related skills. And then when it comes to written composition, it's really spelling and then transcription related skills. They determine how much you can produce. Even if you have fantastic ideas to write about, you cannot spell. Handwriting is so painful. Your keyboarding is so slow right, as you experience that impact your writing process, right? Now, at a more advanced phase, majority of students have developed not transcription skills like spelling and handwriting, keyboard, and word reading skills. So then quality of written composition or reading comprehension is largely determined by skills like oral discourse skills and determinants of oral discourse skills such as reasoning, perspective-taking, and oral language skills. For example, if you think about secondary writing, how you express the same ideas matters a lot more 
than transcription skills because, again, majority of students at that point have developed sufficient word reading and spelling skills. Again, there are high order thinking skills. If you think about like argumentative writing, understanding different viewpoints, think about opposing views. Mm-hmm. And countering that view, that requires, again, inference-making, perspective-taking, all those pieces. So foundational, say, lexical literacy skills are important, but the ones that's developed sufficiently, the other pieces and the other pillar are really becoming increasingly important. I want to add, though, that even in secondary schools, there are students who have not developed or still struggle with word reading and uh, spelling, those foundational pieces, then they still play a role in their reading and writing process. Yeah, so I think that's an important distinction. A is that typical development would indicate that by the time they get to the upper grades, those word reading skills have been developed, but there's many students potentially from lack of instruction and or there is some challenges in in learning those skills, may not have those skills. But I want to clarify something because I think as a teacher, we just talked about how it's not just word reading, it's also oral language, and there has to be a balance of those two. But then we talked about as it's a developmental process, there can be more emphasis in the early grades on one or the other, but it's not at an exclusion, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea that early on, we do need to develop those word reading skills in our younger students. And I think that's been missing in a lot of the instruction that's been out there and maybe why there's been an overemphasis on phonics is because a lot of the balanced literacy or whole language instruction did include a lot of the oral language focus, whether or not it was explicit and systematic. That's another question. But so this idea of teachers thinking about their daily instruction, can you maybe talk about maybe the balance of focus in the earlier grades against these two pillars, both as it relates to reading and writing, because what we're learning today, and I hope our listeners are understanding, there is the same house, the same roof Mm -hmm. of reading comprehension and writing composition. They're supported by the same skills. So it's really important to think about that. But can you clarify for our teachers who are listening out there in in school and district leaders, this idea of how you think about a balance of these two pillars as you cut across both K to three and then four to eight and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important point, and that could be very confusing. I may sound very abstract or ideal, but ultimately, what it boils down to is knowing your students, right? So the point here is that all these things are necessary. So 
our job is helping students develop all these skills. But depending on where students are, the reason why there's so much focus on lexical literacy in primary grades is because by development, these are where students are, right? But that does not mean that we have to spend the vast majority of time on lexical literacy at the expense of not teaching the other or at the exclusion of not teaching the other. So if you think about K-2-2, if I go back to the classrooms, K-2-2, then I would teach the lexical literacy and the related pieces like print-related emergent literacy skills. But then at the same time, I would also devote time to help support children develop vocabulary knowledge, building back on knowledge, and developing, making inferences, all these pieces. I would do that. As children develop lexical literacy skills, I'm going to reduce the time I spend on that because they're becoming more accurate and they're becoming more automatic, right? So then I would spend more time now on the other pieces now involving written text instead of oral text. Mm -hmm. So then if you transition to grades three and four, again, the majority of students at that point, we hope that they have uh, developed foundational lexical literacy skills, they have automaticity, then you would really engage in the comprehension of deep meaning making now using written text. Again, nonetheless, those students, there will be a group of students, small number of students, I hope, who still need instruction on the lexical literacy. Then I would actually have to devote some part of my instructional time for those particular group of students on the lexical literacy side of it. Great. Thank you for that clarification. And you brought up another really important point that we haven't really talked about much today when you said about knowing your students, of course, some of that is informal assessment as you're working with them, but that points out again, the importance of screeners and progress monitoring tools to make sure that we understand, right? Different students will have different areas of strength or opportunities for growth. And so for our district leaders and school leaders who are making those decisions around assessments, whether it's embedded in a particular curriculum or it's a standalone assessment, these skills that are listed in the house should be areas that they can assess right? Like there's many screeners out there that do assess word reading or even fluency. And there's, I think, fewer that look at that oral side, oral language, or of course, a lot of reading comprehension assessments out there. So can you just speak to, again, that we don't want to be testing just to test, I always say you want to make sure you know what question you're trying to answer before you give a test yeah. because you might already know the answer. But can you just talk about that idea of knowing your students and how that does help inform what you're focusing on, whether with the whole class or individual students? Yes, teachers know this. Educators know this, even parents, once you step into one classroom, you'll know, say you have 30 students, 
their strengths and needs are different, right? So how do we know about it? Of course, it's assessment. So we have tools for assessments, and depending on the goals of assessment, we have different types such as screening, progress monitoring, summative, and et cetera. But I guess ultimately what we are trying to provide through assessment is to know your students and their needs and strengths and to provide instruction that meets their needs. And this is called differentiated instruction. Some people call it individualized instruction. When I use the term, people tend to take it as, okay, instruction has to be at the individual level and that sounds too impossible. And so I use the term differentiated instruction because definitely practically feasible to group students with similar needs and strengths and provide instruction, right? So as I said before, in primary grades, the majority of students need lexical literacy skills instruction. But that's not for everyone. You will always see that even in kindergarten, there are some students who read books already, right? They don't need that word reading and spelling instruction. So that's where assessment come in because not everyone has the same needs and strength profiles, right? So you would have an assessment and kind of look at the assessment data and how students cluster together based on the instructional needs. I haven't seen a lot of districts doing screen, including screening on written composition or oral discourse skills like listening comprehension or producing a coherent story. I haven't seen a lot of them. I've um, seen quite a lot now, uh, including vocabulary, but not on other pieces. That's understandable. It takes time to develop measures that are reliable and valid, but there's definitely that you know unbalance in terms of what's available. But theoretically, we need actually screen children on not only lexical literacy side, but also oral discourse side, because if we don't catch these children who are weak in oral discourse side, it will appear that they will all of a sudden in about grades three and four, they may appear to be like having difficulties in reading comprehension and written composition when they didn't appear to have difficulties in earlier grades in word reading and spelling. Yeah. Well, it's not actually surprising, right? Because they weren't assessed, right? So it's a really an assessment issue. It's not that they had a really superb skill and all of a sudden they become weak. Yeah. And that's on an earlier episode in 2023, we had Dr. Tiffany Hogan on talking about developmental language disorder. And we hear so much about students with dyslexia who it's primarily an issue around their phonological awareness. But DLD is just as prevalent. But to your point, there's often fewer assessments out there that are looking at that. So again, that's another thing for teachers to think about in the classroom in terms of making sure as you're even doing your informal checks with your students, making sure that you're looking at some of those language skills and really, again, the importance of listening comprehension as a method, not waiting until you're using reading comprehension. So I think that's really important. So in this model, it includes reading comprehension. It includes written composition. Can you talk 
a little bit more about the connection between reading and writing and maybe specifically about what are the implications for instruction? Should that instruction occur separately? Can it occur together? Sure. To give a little bit of intuitive sense, why reading and writing are related and then why reading and writing are together in this model. If you think about daily lives, right? Like even writing a grocery list. And then, of course, for use, you use reading skills, right? So you use reading and writing for functional purposes. But that's functional purpose. But let's think about my writing process and reading process, for example. If you think about the writing process, many writing tasks uh, require reading, right? Many writing tasks ask the writer to read something and write about it. So if you think about writing assessments in grades three, four, students have to read something and write about it. If students have difficulty reading words, if they don't have strong textual reading fluency or reading comprehension, the quality of writing will be impacted because they cannot generate high quality ideas that will be the source for the writing text, right? And the other part of why reading is important as part of writing is think about your own revision process. So you have a draft composition and you revise it. What do you do? You have to read what you have written carefully and then identify areas to modify. And when you read your own composition, if you have, again, difficulty in reading your own words, right, or text reading fluency and comprehension, meaning that you cannot develop an accurate idea or mental model of what you have written, then revision process will be negatively impacted because... Right, You have to know exactly what you have written. Is that aligned with your goal? right? And then evaluate it, and then you have to revise it. right? So there's a reason why reading is intercalated related to writing. And there's evidence, meta-analysis has shown that reading and writing are related. But the key implication for reading and writing relations is that Reading comprehension and written composition are practically built on the same skills, identical skills, right? That's why they are placed in the same place, like a roof, right? That does not mean that these skills are used to the same extent for reading process versus for writing process. There's actually reading and writing are not identical. There's reason for it. But the implication then is if reading, writing are built on identical skills and they're related, then when you teach reading very well, students' writing will improve. And when you teach writing very well, students' reading will improve. And studies have shown that. Another important piece is that then when you teach reading and writing in an integrated manner, when you do that very well, it would have a synergistic effect on both reading and writing outcomes. So when you teach Word reading, incorporate spelling. When you teach spelling, incorporate word reading. When you teach reading comprehension, link it to written composition and vice versa. Right. So instead of teaching them in, you have your reading block and then you have your writing block after it, thinking about integrating them because one is going to influence the other. Exactly. I mean, there are... Unique pieces that you have to tease out in the reading block and there are unique pieces that you have to tease out in the writing block, but there are definitely pieces that you can actually address in a very 
explicitly linked manner. And this is really important. I think this is a little bit more natural or intuitive for words reading and spelling, but I think it's a little bit less intuitive for reading comprehension and written composition. And I think that's where the connection, the teachers really have to be very consciously making it visible to the students that link between reading and writing visible to students. So let's think about an example. Say you're talking about author's intention and author's associated discourse moves and strategies, right? And you're doing that as part of reading a text, right? But then you can link it to the writing process. You shouldn't stop just, oh, when you read this is why the author wrote this and then to achieve the goal, the author did this. You shouldn't stop there. You should link it to the writing process because in writing, students are authors and they have to be mindful of the goal of their writing and how to best convey their message, which is using different strategies, right? Such as us using certain types of vocabulary, certain rhetorical strategies, certain structure, right? Organizational structure. So bring this to students' attention when you talk about reading and link it to writing. So when students are writing narrative, okay, we talked about reading, a good story has these different pieces. Now we are going to write about our own story and let's make sure that we include them and use graphic organizer and as part of the planning process and teach them how to use those different components as part of their story. Excellent. So that idea of you can have separate reading and writing blocks because there are separate skills that you want to emphasize in those, but making sure that you kind of take that next step if you're working on reading comprehension. How does that tie to the student being an author and including that or making those connections? To your point, I think it is more obvious or intuitive, as you said, to connect word reading and spelling, but making sure we're doing it again in that other pillar in this diagram. Even the idea of introducing the story grammar through listening comprehension, and then how would we think about those components when we're writing? I know when I taught first grade, we did a lot of journal writing. And even just thinking about who's the character right in this journal entry, most of the time it's the student themselves. So I appreciate you making some of those connections and giving some explicit examples of how teachers can think about connecting these two in the classroom and also that there is evidence supporting that one influences the other and one can enhance the other. So thanks for sharing that with us in relation to why this model is the way it is in terms of that relationship. This has been so powerful. This model, I think similarly to anything times zero, if one of these pillars is off slightly, then the whole kind of roof might cave in. But what I love about this model, which is different than any of the models we've talked about so far, is the inclusion of writing. And the complex nature of reading 
is overlapping with the complex nature of writing and how they are so interconnected. So I appreciate it so much. And I know that this is going to generate lots of great discussions with our listeners. And even we can have some follow-up sessions to think about these kind of big buckets. But again, the house, you're building that foundation and you can't ignore one half of the house in order to build that foundation. One question I always love to ask my guests as we wrap up here is there's plenty of challenges going on in in the classroom. There's tremendous opportunity. More educators are embracing evidence-based practices. I know you do a lot of work, your research in the schools, you're working with a lot of pre-service teachers. What makes you hopeful about the future of literacy? Well, I actually appreciate the science of reading discussion because it highlighted the significance of employing science-based instructional approach and emphasized the connection between research and practice. And that really gives me lots of hope and excitement because I believe that is really the right direction for the field. And as I work with the pre-service teachers and I work a lot with the in-service teachers, they're extremely excited once they learn about this evidence and they learn about the theory based on research, right? And they grab onto it. And what you notice is they just thrive. And what I see in the classroom is it's just brilliant. So that really has given me a lot of hope and excitement. Yeah, absolutely. That idea of getting to the teachers before they get into the classrooms, helping them learn this amazing knowledge. When we started, I said a lot of teachers may not have heard of all these terms yet because they're still gaining that knowledge. And that is so exciting as someone myself who did not have it in till after I was in the classroom. That I think is a a really exciting movement. And I'm glad you're seeing that excitement from your teachers because it is like unlocking this puzzle. As you said, they're looking at 30 different individual students who have these amazing strengths and areas of growth and opportunity for growth. But unless you have a model like this, it's hard to know where to start or what is important to focus on at what developmental stage. So I really appreciate you joining us today. So much for our listeners to unpack. And I do, again, encourage people to open the visual that is in the show notes. And again, thank you, Young, for taking your time today to help share your work. And I look forward to hearing more about your research around the connections between writing and reading. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been an honor. And thanks to our listeners. I'd love to hear from you. What are the challenges and opportunities you're seeing in our schools? And help us welcome more people to this literacy conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribing so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. 
And you can join the conversation on Twitter or X by following me at Liz C. Brooke. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 